0: I'm Marcus Jones. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Ethan Warren. And we love to watch... We love to watch Aaron succumb to an infection caused by a mysterious bite. Hey, everyone. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. This is is interesting. Um... Aaron is currently in recovery mode. Uh, a strange man came out of the woods when he was visiting uh, the cemetery and, and bit him and, He's, uh, he's recovering upstairs. He should be fine,
1: I think. Do you guys... Do you guys uh... Well, we are in an old abandoned farmhouse. Uh, Aaron d- does have the sweats. He is kind of pale, but I think he's going to pull through. He's a strong guy.
2: I think Aaron needs to, to not uh, try to hug everybody who comes up to him in a cemetery. Like I know it's an emotional place, but it's you're, you're going to get bit like 75% of the time when you do that.
0: <laughs> By the living dead or not, people just bite. It's a natural reaction. I'm I'm more of a slapper than a biter, but like, that's just the the way I was raised. But yeah, so Aaron's, uh, you know, off recovering somewhere. I'll keep you guys updated on his current state. Uh, It's not looking good. Well, Uh, does he ever? Yeah. Oh, oh, wait. I'm receiving word. Oh, yeah. Aaron's dead. Uh, So Marcus, I have good news and I have good news. Aaron is dead. And you get to take his slot. How does that feel?
1: Uh, I mean, it's something the show's been needing for a long time. Uh, I think it's finally going to reach its full potential, and I'm just sad it didn't happen sooner.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We've been really uh, treading water for like 70-ish episodes, but we finally uh, got to not have Aaron on one. So this is what happens. Uh, In all seriousness, uh, Aaron is dead. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on tonight and joining uh, me, Peter Moran and Marcus, the always co-host of We Love to Watch, you know from other shows like uh, Crush Celluloid and jean Pod Van Dam, as well as the website Crush Celluloid.
2: Ethan, uh, thank you so much for joining us. How you doing? You're welcome. Doing? I'm good. I'm really sorry I bit Aaron, but it just he looked really tasty.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know what? You said he had the sweats earlier. I don't know if that was from the infection or if he just had taquitos for lunch. <laughs> um, or if he
1: just got the vapors after getting or bitten by Ethan. he just Eden. got the vapors. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. He's, he's just made it very clear before he passed on into the great beyond that he wasn't infected. He was totally fine. He just was very aroused. And that's fine. A dying man telling me that he's aroused is just kind of part of the deal. So we are covering... This whole month, we're going to be doing a sort of memorial to the great George A. Romero, who passed away this summer. And we're going to be uh, starting with Night of the Living Dead this week. Uh, Yeah, so first off,
2: before we get to that, Ethan, can you tell us maybe three things about yourself? Sure. Um, Number one, I thought it was best to start like 250 years ago. Um, (laughs) That's a good move. Which is I I am the... Great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson of Paul Revere, of Paul Revere's life Oh, what? Yeah, that's me. His great-great-great-great-great-grandson. Wow. That's so cool. I'm the
0: great-great-great-great-grandson of the person that hung Paul Revere. I'm not going to say he, like, deserved it,
2: but, um, <laughs> you know, he was, he was a complicated man. Yeah, treason has its cost, is all I'm saying. I also, like, I think you knocked, like, two greats off of it, so, you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My uh, six-times great-grandfather lived a while. (laughs) (laughs) Or he was hung by an infant. There you go. Um, Um. So number two, this is one for, I don't know if you guys like movies No. Uh, I grew up on the campus of a prep school just outside Boston, um, where my parents were teachers. And uh, so I grew up in in, uh, the faculty apartment of of one of the dorms there. Yeah, the summer of 2000, they uh, used the campus as the set for the movie, What's the Worst That Could Happen? Have you guys seen this movie? With Martin Lawrence and John Loitzelmo? Yes, and Danny DeVito. And it is terrible. I thought you were
1: going to say something about dead men on campus. And I got really
2: excited. No, Uh, I don't think they did. They've shot a lot of movies at at the school. I grew up. That is not one of them. Um, But so, yeah, for the summer of 2000, uh, I was at home and every day outside my house, they, they parked Danny DeVito's trailer right off the steps of my porch. There was Danny DeVito every day. And I never talked to him, but I, I I was going to say like, I watched him a lot. That sounds a little sketchy, but I, I, you know, I did. I know what he
1: puts on his sandwich.
2: Well, I, I know that he um when when you open the door of the trailer, like three little steps come out, and he would need a little stepladder to get to the steps to get to his trailer. <laughs> and
0: that's so just checks out.
2: yeah, I mean and and then in uh, in 2001, the movie was finished and and they put us all on a bus to to go over to the movie theater and watch it, and we were all so excited and then we sat there for an hour and a half. And then we left just so sad. (laughs) That movie is is really terrible, so don't, don't watch
1: it. Um, and that is just a tip for you. (laughs) Well, uh, the movie kind of answered its own question by the title.
2: What's the worst that could
1: happen? <laughs> well, here you go.
2: There was at least one review that uh, just it said, what's the worst that could happen? Everything else is sold out. <laughs> <laughs> that was That's pretty good.
0: So you're eventually not watching
2: the actors. You're just watching around And them like, hey, is, is that my house? Uh, is that my street? Exactly. And so number three, uh, this is this is very um, you know pertinent to our current situation. I don't want to bring the mood down. I was recently uh, unwittingly complicit in a Russian cyber scam. Wow. Mm. Which is not to say that I myself was scammed, but by accident, I participated in scamming some people. (laughs) (laughs) Holy crap. Can you say what your role was? Yeah. So unwittingly complicit is the term I like to use. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, I was a judge for a film festival this year, Um, or at least that's how I thought of myself. (laughs) So I got, I got an email uh, last winter that said, do you want to be a, a judge for this film festival? And I won't say the name uh, for the sake of the people who submitted their films to it. And, and the email just said, you know, you'll get the login code uh, and you just watch the short films and you assess them. And then, then you send us your ratings and we'll take it from there. And I thought, well, you know, what's the harm? They're not asking you for any personal info. And so I watched 200 short films over the course of last winter and gave all the ratings and then didn't think much about it. And then I just started to think like, you know, something felt a little weird about this. And I started looking around online and I realized that this film festival's website had like zero information on it. And that's very unusual. Their social media accounts were completely blank. And this was purporting to be in like the third year. And so I did a little research, and it turned out what I dug up uh, was that this was actually run by a Russian man with, like, the most Russian-sounding name you can possibly find. <laughs> and, and he has, you know, several shell social media accounts that will just scream and yell at anybody who says this, but he is basically sitting in Russia just accepting uh, filmmaker submission fees and then getting poor schmucks like me to actually do the work of running his film festival. Then he... Uh, sets up the festivals in different uh, cities over Europe and in, in like Benihana restaurants. And then he says, film festival at the Benihana and people show up and the, the people running the Benihana just press play on a on a machine and the films just play on the wall of the Benihana during dinner. <laughs> and all the filmmakers are like, great, and then nobody comes out to do MC or awards or anything and then everyone just goes home. And so it's, it's like he's following the letter of the law, but very much not the spirit. And so it's, you know, long story short, I was unwittingly complicit in a Russian cyber scam, and I feel very conflicted about it.
0: That is a absurd story. I had I, you never think about it in those terms that they would actually like <laughs> give a shit enough to dis- like put on this like pageant of, a, of an actual festival. And yet.
2: Yeah, wow. 200, and you watched 200 short films for this I thing? I watched 200 short films, and a couple of them were genuinely great, and the whole experience was good. I put it on my resume, so, you know, I, <laughs> I personally do not feel scammed at all. And it's just it's this very weird sort of
1: murky gray area. Upside, Benihana got some business out of that. That's true. So you may yeah. have been complicit in a Russian cyber scam, but you were also involved in uh, boosting some Benihana business. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that yeah. place has really sort of been on the downswing since the
2: 90s when that whole, like, you know, onion volcano thing sort of, you know, hit its peak. Tell me more about this onion volcano. <laughs> Isn't that Benihana? I've never actually been to one, but I thought it was the place where like they have... I haven't either. And the guy makes the little like, you know, cone of onions and then it it goes on fire. I I know this from movies, which is where I've learned almost everything I know about the world.
0: I have been to a Benihana IRL in the meat space before. uh, And I can say that there is truly no worse place to play a movie because (laughs) it doesn't matter how... It doesn't matter how jaded you are and how pissed off you are. Just watching these dudes work is like magic. Like, how did he? No, no, his hands didn't move that fast. It is it is so distracting. It's not like you're like, it's on the wall of like a dive bar where like, you might actually get people paying attention because they're mostly in there for the booze, right?
1: Benny Hanna, <laughs> they're there for the show.
0: This is a story that
2: really just keeps unfolding for me over the course of the past year.
0: Yeah, that is an insane scam and is not what I expected at all. And uh, I'm sorry to those filmmakers. And uh, I, I hope some Benny Hanna staff appreciated their films.
2: Yeah, a lot of them were subtitled, needless to say. So, you know, this is this is not exactly, you know, just just a uh, little nice, pleasant animated shorts that you can watch This is like you need to focus on like the drama.
1: But a dude's flipping shrimp over here, man. I can't I can't pay yeah. attention to this. We got a shrimp flipper over here. We got a dude doing making onion cones and shit. Onion volcanoes. I didn't even know that was real.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love volcanoes and I love onions. I didn't know that there was any sort of a uh, meeting of these two Venn diagrams. The two best things in life. I didn't finish that Werner Herzog documentary about volcanoes. Do you think he discussed onion volcanoes? Almost certainly. Yeah, I mean, he's a thorough man. Thank you so much, Ethan, for for sharing uh, actually very interesting tidbits about your past. Um, What did you watch, uh, experience in the past
2: uh, month or so, horror-wise? So, I uh, am not the kind of person who usually goes for, like, sort of Halloween-y horror. I don't know how else to put it. Like... um, you know, like serial killer stuff, and and Friday the Thirteenth, and and Jason and Freddy, and all of that. So my list is kind of a little more like sort of existential dread, terror stuff. But I did I did experience some some spooky stuff. So I I uh, recently saw the Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is the new uh, Yorgos Lanthimos oh. movie. I just realized I've never heard that pronounced. I might have done it wrong, <laughs> but that's phonetically it's Yorgos Uh the You said it with authority. <laughs> And uh, and he did uh, Dogtooth and a movie called Alps. And it was really fantastic. Did you guys see it yet? No, I have not. Not
0: yet. We were talking about... I was talking about seeing it last weekend, and I did the same thing that you just did where... You, you did lovely with this name. I did the same thing you did where I was, like, about to say his name, and I was like,
1: Yorg slum- mm. <laughs> You almost said Yakov smirnov
0: <laughs> Yakov Lamprey Most... And uh, then I was like, I think he's from Europe somewhere. And then the person I was in the car was like, Yorgos Lanthimos. He's from Greece. And I was like, Thank you. I hadn't said it out loud before. This is yeah. So you like Killing of a Sacred Deer? I've he- I've been hearing some good things about it.
2: I I thought it was really great. Um It's the first one of his movies that I've seen in a theater, and I think it really benefits from that. So the way I like to describe his movies is they're about depressed aliens adrift in an emotionally absurd wasteland. That's something that I think really sort of benefits from you being stuck in your seat and just sort of drifting along. Um, very much unlike The Lobster, it takes place in basically the real world, but you sort of slowly get the sense that like, there's something vaguely magical at play. And I definitely don't want to say any more because it, it really plays its cards really close to the chest and it's got elements of body horror. It's very specifically sort of about the terrors of being a father and a patriarch. Um, so just super fascinating, super scary. Um, then I saw the lure, uh, which is the, ah what, where is the, is it, Polish this this movie, the, the musical about uh, Yeah murderous mermaids.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh it's a Polish movie. I watched that it was my very first Spooktober movie of the
2: month. Um so I saw that this month as well. Well, I thought it was just a bee's knees. Um and <laughs> I mean that's that's it's a movie that really does feel like it fits the term bee's knees, because it's so weird and fun and beautiful and also like really creepy and sad and it is a Polish musical about murderous mermaids. Again, I, I think the way it uses bodies and the treatment of desire is is similar to the killing of a sacred deer. Something that clearly I am identifying creeps me out. Um, and then, <laughs> sort of just the the landscape that it takes place in this uh, sort of Eastern Bloc world that is both impoverished and sort of gaudy and very in your face and erotic. And the music is great and. Music is great. It's it's really really good. Um, then I saw uh, this is actually a rewatch. I watched uh, Hour of the Wolf, um, which is an Ingmar Bergman movie that's it's not sort of usually in his uh, list of top films, but is I think his most sort of classic outright horror film, um, which is it's about this uh, couple that lives on an island off the coast coast of. Uh, Sweden and Max von Sydow, obviously one of his favorite actors, uh, is slowly slipping into insanity and delusions. But something that I hadn't really picked up before I watched it this time uh, is is just how much it's about sort of the terror that comes with being in a in a committed relationship and really binding your life with someone which is a terrible way to describe being in a committed relationship (laughs) but I think that's kind of what the movie gets at is is, uh, what happens when you really have like sort of combined your life with someone else's and then they are, are slipping away from you into delusion so it's it's really great.
0: I intended on watching that this month, and then I think it's, like, out of print. I had some trouble getting a hold of it. Mm. Um, it's on Filmstruck. It, That's how I saw it. There we go. That's where I should have looked. Persona and uh, The Virgin Spring are both pretty creepy but never actually classified as horror i think virgin spring is sort of classified as like uh existential thriller at at best uh closest to horror but i would like to see something that like fans of bergman are more classically defining as horror uh but i missed it this month i'll definitely get around to that soon though
2: it's very good and it's it's got these uh really overtly um sort of surrealist images it feels very uh sort of dolly-esque at times so it's, it's great. It's, it's one of the only Bergman movies that I have finished him and been like, I'm rewatching that <laughs> as much yeah. as I love his films. A lot of the times it's like, that was harrowing and I'm glad I did it once. Yeah.
0: When I recently watched Persona, my when it was over, my reaction was to, like, quickly eject the disc and put it in the mailbox. But, yep. like, five, ten minutes later, it started to grow on me. So, I was just like, oh, please get that out of my house. And I still, it's still a haunting movie. They're just, like, they operate on this psychological level that not every movie operates on. It gets into your dreams. It's a very
2: weird uh, sort of technique he has. Um, and so then one other thing I would recommend is actually a play that I read um, a couple of nights ago. Uh, Actually, it was a few weeks ago I um, did this uh, 24-hour playwriting marathon um, which is I, uh, at 9 o'clock, I got emailed to me a prompt that I had to write a uh, 10-minute horror play, and I had about 6 hours to do that, and then I emailed it back to the producers, and the whole gimmick is that then, 24 hours after I got the prompt emailed to me, the plays were produced, and... So as I got sort of geared up to do this, I was really curious sort of how you do horror on stage because it's, it's something that is sort of tough to wrap your mind around because so much of what works in horror movies is tied to sort of effects and lighting and sound and all these things that are are harder to achieve on stage. And so I hunted down this play uh, that is written by Ira Levin, who wrote the novel that Rosemary's Baby was based on. Mm -hmm. And... It's this little play from the 70s that takes place in real time in one room, Veronica's room, as the title says, just over the course of a, a couple hours. Again, something that is really fascinating to me from the Bergman movie uh, is is reality just sort of starts to come apart. And that's something that you can really do on stage in a unique way. You're just creating horror and tension from the way characters speak to each other and interact with each other and... and Sort of takes advantage of the, the relationship between the audience and the actor being in the same physical space and just the discomfort of, of that experience when you're at a party, say, and, and somebody starts to just make you realize that not everything is okay, uh, sort of upstairs. And I don't know if you guys go to the same parties I do, but there's constantly <laughs> coming apart at the seams, clearly.
1: I don't get invited <laughs> to
2: parties. Oh, well, you shouldn't (laughs) go, because as I'm telling you, they're just horror shows. (laughs) Anyway, it's a fascinating play. It's super scary. Uh, It gets really transgressive and and flat out terrifying towards the end. And it is currently in development as a film. Uh, So that's good news. Uh, It's supposed to be with Tilda Swinton and Rooney Mara. Bad news. It is set up at the Weinstein Company. Ooh. oh no not to date this episode of the podcast so we'll see how that turns out
0: only i think just guessing going forward i think only the big directors and the big projects are going to be able to like escape from from the clutches of what's happening over there uh yeah because a lot a lot of stuff is just gonna get completely gone away it is i hope that the uh the script is escapes from the whatever purgatory it's going to be in from the Weinstein situation because uh, it sounds really cool it
2: is it's really cool and it's it's really crazy that it's never gotten picked up because it is really hits on a lot of similar beats to Rosemary's Baby and, and sort of pushes a lot of similar buttons so I, I hope people can experience it and that is my spooktober wrap up thank you for giving me that space to rant about the things that creep me out Thank you so much for,
0: uh, for bringing a little list. That was uh, super helpful to uh, sort of tell what other people's months looked like. Because I think Aaron's and mine looked very, very similar. Uh, Marcus. Yes, sir. In the past month or so uh, through the month of Spooktober, what sort of horror media, creepy media, uh, spooky media did you enjoy?
1: uh anyway yeah. so back back to uh yeah spooktacular uh so actually <laughs> the first horror film that i watched this month uh was the movie that we're going to talk about tonight Night of the living dead uh thanks to movie another great streaming service that was one of the first things they added at the beginning of the month uh which they've also added some other things like uh, abel for the driller killer i got to see that for the first time on movie as well um i of course watched uh, Ernest scared stupid for our other podcast uh hey burn it's a podcast Uh, Which was a lot of fun Just recently this past week uh, Cole and I, my co-host from Crush Celluloid Watched all four of the Wreck films Which uh, Kind of go a straight shot down In terms of quality and entertainment Uh, Yes they do Yeah, the first one is kind of amazing The second one, pretty good The third one, it had me briefly But kind of went off the rails in the most uninteresting way And the fourth one I didn't know what the fuck was happening And I fell asleep a lot (laughs)
0: uh yeah i stopped watching partway through four and because i and i rarely don't finish movies even the trashiest of movies because mostly i like to be able to actually talk shit about them when they're over and yeah those movies it's like One is this amazing little piece that could just work on its own. Two is really, really cool, but it kind of has some loose ends. And then three just sucks because it doesn't answer any of the loose ends from two.
1: (laughs) Well, three is interesting because... And I was really on board for the beginning of three because it has this whole, like, maybe 20-minute opening segment where it is all handheld camera, it's at a wedding, it's starting, but then 20 minutes in... The camera breaks, and then the title card pops up, and I'm just like, oh shit, they're throwing it out the window, and now they're just making a regular movie. But then they just get really weird and silly with it in a way that's kind of funny, but not... Overly entertaining and they still keep Cutting back to the the found footage Thing from security cameras and It it just doesn't work anymore but that First 20 minutes like especially when they were just Like nope this is this isn't your mama's wreck This is gonna be different We're gonna make it a real movie now because the camera Broke like that was interesting but then It just derailed from there
0: So I'll say real quickly, uh, on my spooktober list, I watched Train to Busan again as a rewatch. I think Train to Busan and Record are like two of the best zombie movies since 28 Days Later. Like far and away, I think that a a movie from Korea and a movie from Spain and a movie from Britain 28 Days Later are the three best zombie movies we've gotten just of the 2000s, let's say. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that's really, it's really interesting, but I really wish the series hadn't shit the bed so badly.
1: Uh, and I will just say, finally, I think the only other thing I can really recall watching off the top of my head was uh, the new Chucky movie, Cult of Chucky, uh, which came out on Netflix, and I thought was quite enjoyable.
0: I watched the first Chucky movie because I realized I've only seen Chucky 2, so I watched Child's Play this month, uh, and it made me want to go and just, like, do all the
1: movies. Just Child's Play 2 actually scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. Like, that one Child's actually Play 2 got me. was great.
0: I saw that in a theater last year, and it played really, really well for the theater. People loved it. It's funny. It's scary. It's just like a perfect, like, horror experience, I think, yeah. for a, a crowd.
1: But the series is still fun even at this point. Like, it's it's weird and kind of... Uh off-kilter, but it still has a lot of really good kills in it. Brad Dourif as Chucky still works after all these years. Also, his daughter Fiona Dourif uh, as the lead in that. She is great. Uh, she's also great at, I don't know if you saw, uh, the Dirt Gently series, the BBC series that Max Landis wrote with Elijah Wood and stuff. She's great in that as well. Um, but yeah, no, it was actually a really enjoyable entry, which was kind of good because the last one was pretty forgettable and before that was like Seed of Chucky where it had John Waters in it, but it was just bad
0: (laughs) (laughs) you can get like all the movies super cheap they keep releasing these box sets so i'm going to pick one of those those up and kind of catch my way up because people seem to be having fun with these these newer entries uh it doesn't
1: seem to be a trajectory down uh the kid that played andy barkley he's back now and oh that's awesome yeah he, he's grown up and yeah not a great actor but still just kind of fun to see him in the movie
0: it's like phantasm where you're like yeah they're not all great actors
1: but it's fun to see him we've been watching these people for like 40 years yeah exactly i mean i guess in the second one they were like uh james Lagrosse that we'll, we'll upgrade it a little bit but yeah <laughs> then we brought the other kid back and well i guess we just have that kid now
0: Yeah, now we just got him. That'd be funny if they kept James in as like an alternate reality one because they just wanted the whole family together. Uh, So yeah, for my my end of the month, uh, let's just say my total for watched movies for Spooktober uh, was 64, uh, which is an insane number. I have no idea how I did it. Uh, 11 of them were repeats. 53 were completely new to me. Uh, and I don't want to answer any questions about it because I would watch it at weird times I start watching movies at the gym, which is a new thing. I tried out uh, and I realize now that my compulsion to watch these movies during October is like probably like mentally unhealthy at this point like <laughs> i like, would be like, oh, what should I watch tonight? I'm like, well my numbers. I gotta get my numbers
2: up.
1: Yeah, but yeah, you can watch those all year <laughs>
2: There's a reason that we have have found our way to each other as people, and I think it's that we have unhealthy relationships with movies.
0: Yes, exactly. So exactly. You're,
2: you're in a good company, you're in a safe space.
0: Yeah, nobody makes fun of me for the 64. They might be baffled by them. I'm more worried,
1: because that's over <laughs> two jealous. movies a day.
0: <laughs> and the nice thing about horror, though, is that some of them are like 70, 80 minutes, which is like, I can easily, like... If I start at nine, sneak in two of those and go to bed at a normal hour. So uh, that's where I end at 64 movies. Uh, The best new one that I watched, though, was uh, Let's Scare Jessica to Death. It's from 1971. It is a movie about a um, mentally ill woman that was just released from some sort of psychiatric care. And she's going to like this new house that her and her husband just bought. And she starts to slowly unravel. And that's all I want to say about it because it's so cool. And the score is this weird dissonant connection between synths, like early, early, like movie synths and. Choruses and Strings and Battering drums and like they all kind of Flow into one another it's got One of my favorite horror scores ever and it just Make it really elevates the movie from like A pretty creepy movie to a Like beautiful movie with an eerie Score so uh, yeah that's That was my favorite new one of the month I already talked about train to Busan which is amazing And uh, I rewatched what we do in the Shadows which is twice As funny as the last time I watched it it is
2: Such a sweet movie Right, I'm, just, I'm just adding uh, the Let's Scare Jessica to Death to my letterboxed watch list right now because that sounds phenomenal.
0: Thank you very much, Marcus. Uh,
2: and Ethan, I believe you brought a game for us. And if not, I'm going to be very embarrassed. I did. And uh, would you like to improvise uh, a game show theme, Pete? Uh, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, Marcus, do you want to give me a little, like, uh, fat beat?
1: Uh, boom, boom. boom.
0: Ethan brought a boom, game, boom, and we're ch- gonna play the game. Ch- that's the game that we're boom, gonna boom, play. I'm guessing boom, it's related ch- to zombies, because that's boom, the theme of boom, this game. Go, Ethan.
2: <laughs> so the game was called "How much can I make these two guys do just by setting the ball rolling?" In the answer, that I could get Marcus <laughs> beatboxing in just one step. I also brought another game.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow, you're a regular Ed- Edward Nigma. There you go,
1: E Nigma. <laughs> Brilliant.
2: So this is a game I I uh, you're right it, it does relate to zombies. So I'm not like a big zombie movie connoisseur and so I was I was looking at the Wikipedia page of zombie movies and and there are well over 400 entries and most of them are are completely insane. So I assembled some trends and uh, I, I now have a multiple choice quiz and uh, there's gonna be two questions for each of you and then there's a lightning round. Ooh. And uh, I flipped a digital coin. Marcus, this first question
1: is for you. Oh no! I just I randomized everything because I take my job as, as a a quizmaster really seriously. J- just Thank to you. clarify, uh, so it is multiple choice, and if I get it wrong, computer steal, or is the question just out the window? No, it's the question is out the window, and okay. we'll we'll get there. Okay.
2: The setup is there's there's going to be four choices here, and Marcus, you have to guess which one of these is not a real movie.
1: Oh and
2: shit. If you're if you're correct, you get the point. If you if you lose, you don't you don't get the point. And then uh, Pete has his own question. Okay. So first question to Marcus: A common theme in zombie movies is what if a specific group of people were undead? So uh, what is it? Dead snow is Nazis, for example. Mm-hmm. So which of these four cultures has not been zombified in a movie? A 19th century gold rush prospectors. B mm. Mormons c
1: nudists or d the ancient Maya I'm I'm stuck between a and D I'm pretty sure <laughs> B and c have both definitely uh been it
0: nudist feels safe
1: yeah nudist oh yeah there's definitely been nudist uh zombies not
0: to influence your answer of course
1: um as much as I want to say that it's that maybe Gold Prospectors hasn't been done, I feel like it probably has. I'm going to go D.
2: The Ancient Maya, you are incorrect. Fuck! Uh, the Ancient Maya, there was a movie in 2004 called Curse of the Maya, which starred uh, Martin Sheen's younger brother Joe Estevez uh, So the the correct answer is
1: 19th century gold rush prospectors Damn there it not <laughs> I guess that was wishful <laughs> thinking I was just really hoping there was a movie about zombie prospectors I feel like there's I feel like there's potential there Because
2: I feel like you could do like maybe there was like a mine cave in And maybe like there was a land baron Who didn't keep the, the mine safe And then they have to come back and, and attack His great grandchildren or something
1: Yeah there will be zombies I think there's something there
2: Weirdly enough, uh, Marcus
0: was on our Ghosts of Mars episode, which is like a space western about a bunch of miners in a like future western camp. They find a, te- a like a tomb, a temple that like releases evil and creates space zombies. So like there's like a futuristic version of this concept that Marcus and I uh, I watched. Uh, but I would love to see like an actual like 18th century version of it. Mm. I think I think there's something there. That's a movie
2: that needs to happen. We just learned that we all want this. Yeah. The market is there. Uh, Ethan. Yeah, exactly. Ethan, you have to make this movie for us now. Okay. That's good. Uh, Well, you haven't even heard any of the other movies I've come up with. Okay. Okay. Please. So, question number two. This is for you, Pete. Uh, So, frequently, so-called zombie movies are not about reanimated corpses. Uh, They're about normal people who are transformed into brain-dead cannibals by an external trigger, like the Stephen King book and movie Cell... Uh, People are turned into ravenous cannibals by their cell phones. So which of these four has not been used as a zombie transformation agent in a movie? A, a potent batch of the drug bath salts. B, a tainted batch of moonshine. C, an infected wood splinter. Or D, a defective batch of hairspray.
0: Hmm. I'm just going to go with moonshine.
2: Nope. Nope. Marcus, you are incorrect Apparently Marcus has seen Redneck zombies. Broken Springs Oh, what, there's another? Was it also called Broken Springs? I think they're, I think maybe
1: that's the alternate title Possibly, or that's just another one Because I'm pretty sure <laughs> Redneck Zombies, yeah. the trauma film, was Tainted Moonshine Well, there. You, oh, uh, I don't know if this was a trauma
2: So maybe there's been more than one uh, The correct answer is uh, Defective Batch of Hairspray has not been a movie yet You have some good red herrings in here, buddy I, there's 400 zombie movies out there and they're mostly crazy. So, <laughs> Marcus, back to you. Yes. Uh, score is 0 to 0 so far. This is this is a slightly longer one, so bear with me. Mm-hmm. So, a surprisingly common theme in zombie movies is baseball storylines or baseball imagery. So, which of these descriptions does not refer to a real movie? A. In the Hangout Zombie Movie, you never realized you needed Violence cuts through chill vibes as two former baseball players make their way across zombie-ravaged Connecticut. B. When a high school baseball team faces off against a team of undead players, they must recruit a retired pitcher with a lethal arm. C. In one scene from this story of a zombie outbreak, an undead baseball team gets upset when a security guard takes away their ball, so they feast on his intestines until one of them finds the ball and they resume the game. Or D. On the day of a high-stakes minor league game, an infected hot dog vendor gets blood in his ketchup supply, turning his customers into zombies and forcing the rival teams to put aside their differences and defend themselves against their fans.
1: Okay, first question. Baseball is a running theme in zombie movies? You know, man, I don't make the rules. Uh, Are you describing complete plots of movies or just specific scenes within movies? So three of those were sort of overviews of plots, and one was just a scene. And the fourth one is the one that had the, the infected ketchup. That's correct. I'm going to go B.
2: You're incorrect. That is a Japanese it's movie called Battlefield, Battlefield Baseball. Baseball from 2003.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was D with the infected ketchup. Ah, oh, damn it. I keep, You tell me these things, and they sound like they're a great idea. So I'm like, of course someone's done that. I think that might be the best idea I've ever had for a script, honestly.
0: <laughs> I have owned uh, Battlefield Baseball before, and I watched, I believe I watched the first movie
2: uh, that you described. Is the first movie The Battery? Worth noting, uh, yeah, the description of A, The Battery, was almost entirely drawn from Pete Moran's Letterboxd review. <laughs> okay, okay. The zombie um, yes. movie you never knew you needed, according to Pete Moran. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that sounded familiar. I'm really glad that you gave that to Marcus, not me. Uh, would have corrupted the whole game. We would have had to um, burn the whole episode. Wow. I, I was also really proud sad that I knew the titles of at least two of those. <laughs>
2: Very good. <laughs> Final normal question is to Peter. Again, the, the score is zero to zero. Uh, so a common subgenre of uh, zombie movies is the zombie animal movie. So which of these animals has not been the focus of a zombie movie? A raccoons, B sheep, C sloths, or D all within one movie: lions, monkeys, koalas, giraffes, gorillas, and birds. Um, I think the last one is zombies. Correct.
0: Uh, oh, wait. Uh, <laughs> I think I think the second one is black sheep. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna say raccoons because I know there's a beaver one, but I don't. I can't think of a raccoon one. Incorrect.
2: It's sloths. God damn it. It With is slots? Slots. slots. is not real.
1: I made that up. I, okay. I, I, I knew it was A or C. I just didn't know which one. So
2: A uh, is Coons Bandits of the Night, which is a trauma release from 2005.
1: A not well-titled trauma release. Let yeah, me just say, in 2005 of all times. <laughs> That's honestly how all these questions have worked. I've known two to be real, and then there are two that I have to guess between.
2: <laughs> uh, wow, this is a tough game. I really like this. I'm pleased with that. Going into the lightning round, uh, this is a tiebreaker round, uh, and the score is 0-0, zero to zero, so the winner takes it all. So, zombie movies uh, often have titles that are either puns uh, or intentionally over-the-top or trashy or are just stupid. So I have compiled a list that mixes some of the sillier titles uh, with titles that I made up. And so you're going to trade off deciding whether a title is real or fake, and the first person to be wrong is the loser. So, Damn it. Uh, Pete, this first one's to you. Is this movie real or not?
1: Flesh-eating freaks ride the subway.
2: The uh, real. It's fake. Marcus, you won
1: the game. <laughs>
2: Yay! Can I Can it. I get
1: one? Because <laughs> if I lose two, then, then we're still
2: tied. Sure, that's, that's fair, okay. Next one. Uh, Marcus, your title is Abraham Lincoln versus zombies. Real? It's real.
0: Yay! Thank you so much, Marcus, for nobly taking on a question you didn't have to. Uh, I think that was like one of those, maybe not asylum, but an asylum-like company yeah. that wanted to make
2: a, a versus vampires ripoff. Exactly. Exactly. So, but you didn't get to hear any of my favorite of my fake titles. I think my favorite one was uh, What Dies in Vegas Stays in Vegas. I was proud of that. <laughs> Boy Eats World. I liked that. Boy Eats World. That's pretty good. So yeah, that that's my zombie game. Uh, congratulations, Marcus. Uh, with a score of
1: 1-0, to zero, you have won the game. Yeah, yeah I'd, wow. I'd, that's the best I could hope for, really. That was an excellent game. Thank, thank you very much for that. Well, I hope it wasn't frustratingly hard. <laughs>
0: This was one of uh, the better games we've had on, and I liked that it was. Uh, I knew some shit, so I wasn't completely stumped, but I still uh, lost horribly, uh, which is still fine. Um, I like to think that we all won because we all had a good time,
2: which is what I say when I lose. Also, I learned that all four plus of my zombie movies are viable ideas that passed the uh, smell test with you guys. <laughs> it sounded <laughs> like perfect. something that needed to
1: happen, and why hasn't it already?
2: Can you imagine a movie about
1: zombie sloths, though? Oh, I was thinking maybe when they're zombified, they get
2: real fast. Maybe that's part of it. I don't know. We'll flesh it out. We'll yeah. have a meeting. We'll talk. <laughs> they, become, they become running zombies
0: instead of or running sloth zombies, which makes them run at the pace of a very old dog. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, We are back and I'm going to just do a 90 second recap of the movie because uh, Aaron is not here. Uh, So Night of the Living Dead, if you've never seen it, I don't know how you haven't seen it. We'll get to Ethan in a minute. Uh, It is a movie about the zombie apocalypse happening wherein uh, a woman is in a cemetery with her brother and they're visiting uh, the grave of their father, I believe. And they're talking about their dad, and they're saying, like, they hate coming out here. And then This all is going to be a lot
2: more than G90 90 seconds. You're describing the movie in basically real time. Oh, no, no. Just no, so you I'll know, now, now that I'm I'll the new there.
1: co-host, we're sticking to 90 seconds. <laughs> so you need, to, you need to pick it up there.
2: <laughs> okay, okay, okay.
0: Okay,
1: Marcus, you want to, do you want to start a stopwatch for me? Oh, uh, I've already been keeping time. You're still running.
0: <laughs> <laughs> here. Uh, timer. 60 seconds. Okay, so she's in the graveyard with her brother-in-law, and uh, they get attacked, and the brother-in-law gets killed and eaten, and she uh, runs away, goes to this farmhouse, first meets uh, this guy named Ben, who's this, like, strong, leading type, and he and her also meet this other group of people in the basement, uh, a guy and his wife, another guy and his wife and his daughter. And they sort of band together and try and find a way out of the house, a way to defend the house. And ultimately they turn on each other and They, uh, at the end of the movie, through a failed attempt to gas up the truck, the couple dies, Uh, you know, the zombies break in and eat Barbara, Uh, her brother eats her. And then um, everybody, you know, the daughter is infected and eats the family. And uh, then everything kind of goes to shit. And at the very end, Ben, right when he survives everything, he's the last man standing. He that was my that was my ninety seconds. That's it. Moving happen. on. Yeah, exactly. yeah. He. We may never know what happens to Ben. We're so, what is, <laughs> what is your guys' personal history with the Night of the Living Dead movies? Uh, Ethan,
2: is this your first time watching this movie? I had never seen this movie. I had never seen any of the Romero Dead movies. Um, yeah, zombie movies are not something that have ever like quite appealed to me the way they do for some people. Um, I feel like I've seen sort of some of the like, you know, name brand ones like Shaun of the Dead, uh, which is of course a goofy zombie movie and 28 Days Later. Um, and then I, I think I watched enough Walking Dead to just be like, I think I sort of have my fill. And so I never really hunted this one down. And then I, I, uh, talked to you guys about doing the show, and, and you invited me on for this episode, and I checked it out, and this movie is is just goddamn fascinating, um, and and we'll get into it, but yeah, I, I did not know what I was in for, and, and what I was in for was substantially uh, more interesting than I, I really was expecting, so I'm excited to talk about it.
0: Marcus and I spoke about George Romero with Aaron on the Ghost of Mars episode. We did a sort of... Um, recap of how we felt about him right after he had died and kind of shoved it into the intro the goes to Mars episode. <laughs> so if you want to hear us all very, very fresh and I was very weepy about it, um, then yeah, listen to that. But we'll go over my thoughts this month as well. Uh, I grew up with Night of the Living Dead because they used to play it on our public uh, TV station at night during like certain Saturday nights and around Halloween and stuff. So I grew up with this movie sort of In the back of my mind, like I I, kind of the way you talk, you hear every filmmaker talk about it. And the reason is because it is a movie that entered into the public domain. So public broadcasting stations would play it all the time. It shows up in movies as a movie within a movie all the time. Which was that mind blowing for you, Ethan? You're like, that's the movie they are always showing in the background of movies, or do you not
2: did not really trigger? I think be- I had seen sort of the the imagery and, and the things creep in sort of over the course of my life through cultural osmosis that I, I I sort of knew a lot of the hallmark images without having to like reach to recognize them. So yeah, yeah. I, you hadn't seen it, but you'd seen it. Well, I thought so, and that's that's what's so interesting is I was wrong on a lot of counts, but yeah.
0: So, like, that's that's also my buddy who'd never seen uh, Star Wars until, like, a couple years ago. He was like, I haven't seen it, but I've seen it. Like, yeah. every single moment in the movie has been digested and cut up and put into other movies. It's just like a...
1: Well, that's an interesting thing, because I also had a friend that just hadn't ever seen Star Wars, and he was like, should I watch it? And I was like, "Eh, not really. Like, I kind of think you don't need to at this point. I think you've probably gotten it enough. Like, I don't think it's going to do anything for you, like, not being a kid, enjoying it for the first time or watching it for the first time.
0: I was very happy that he loved it, just because I was like, I'm glad that he did get to have that kid-like experience of being like, now I want to watch them all. But, like, yeah, I was a little concerned. I was like, will he love it? having not been, you know, an eight year old. So yeah, I grew up with this movie. And then when I got a little older, George Romero was one of my gateways into indie film, my gateways into horror, my gateways into just any movie that wasn't in the mainstream, even just older movies. George Romero was my gateway into it. So I'll get more into that for Dawn of the Dead. Night of the Living Dead is a movie that I finally sat down and watched when I was 13, but I had like seen my entire childhood flipping through channels and stopping and staring at like in like horror at it for like, a couple minutes until my brother would come in and be like you're too young to watch this it is a movie that's like weirdly part of my psyche like and probably traumatized me from a very young age so yeah it has like a, a primal effect on me when i watch it again i get like, very sucked in marcus what's your sort of history with uh george and with uh, this movie in particular
1: oh me and georgie uh we, we go way back you and old george yeah uh <laughs> no uh, kind, of, kind of the same thing I was probably somewhere between like 10 and 12 when I first saw this movie. And very much again, because of its kind of weird public domain status, uh, I think I got it like on a cheap DVD from like a Walmart or something for a dollar put out by some production company that's never put out anything of note. Um, but yeah, just basically because they they fucked up putting the copyright uh, on the film when they changed the title of it. Uh, kind of, that's why it's free to watch on YouTube. That's why it, there's, you know, dozens and dozens of DVD releases from who knows where. But yeah, I just had a very crappy transfer on a dollar DVD that I got from Walmart and yeah, just kind of fell in love with it. Watched it Many, many times, uh, eventually sought out Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. And of course, like around uh, that time going forward is when stuff like The Land of the Dead was starting to come out. So I kind of followed it as it went along as well. But yeah, just uh, I'm sure I had seen some zombie movies before that. Uh, But yeah, this is kind of the bread and butter of the zombie genre and this is kind of what i go back to and
0: and and that's the uh the thing we'll i think i want to talk about really briefly is that he was inspired by richard matheson's i am legend Mm -hmm. which sort of had these vampire zombies laying siege upon a home which is maybe my favorite book uh i've read it like six times in my life. I just like adore that book, which actually has a adaptation in Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price that's pretty fun. But yeah, this is, uh, it was drawing from that. It was drawing a little bit from the Haitian idea of zombies, uh, more in the way that they move and such and culturally it would adopt the name zombie, though like they point out in Shaun of the Dead, they don't say the term zombie in this movie. They're known as ghouls and things mostly. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this movie has a rich cultural history. It's hard to capture a couple words because it basically like shocked American audiences so much and international audiences so much, not just like in its initial theater run, but also through the Years and years of of its um, public domain uh, nature being abused and it being put on TV a ton and people making cheap prints of it and putting it into theaters all over the, the country and all over the world without George's knowledge or permission. Which I think led to a lot of its popularity as well, though, because anyone could see it anywhere. <laughs> That's a great point, Marcus. So I think it would have been influential regardless. Mm-hmm. Plenty of influential movies also make money for the poor people that devoted their life to it. But I think it's even more influential because it could be distributed so easily and people had no fear of reprisal or little fear of reprisal legally. But yeah, it's a it's an interesting movie because I feel like it's everywhere both in a literal sense and in a more um, a thematic sense because it's helped uh, usher For Gore movies as well, uh, more intense horror movies, uh, more political horror movies as well i don't know if some of roger corman's like uh more subversive movies would have gotten made
2: without this movie sort of laying the laying the the, the foundation for that you mentioned um that sort of people weren't prepared for this um have you guys read roger ebert's uh write-up for... <laughs> yes yes <laughs> it's not really a review yes. what he wrote about the premiere and I, I read that just the other so for the audience members who haven't read it ebert is describing being in an early screening of the movie that is attended by children uh, because this kind of movie is supposed to be like spooky fun um, with, you know, the theremin score and the like, you know, ghouls from beyond the grave. And so it's, it's packed with little kids who are ready to sort of giggle and shriek and have a good time. And then this movie is just incredibly brutal in places. And he describes watching the kids in the audience go from sort of fun scared to like very quiet weepy like real terror and so i i think that that intersection of sort of an audience that is is so young that they're impressionable and and ready to have their little minds warped by this movie uh, i think also probably contributed to it having the legacy that it has
0: yeah and like i said it, it warped Generations of film film fans, uh, as they went on, you always hear about filmmakers seeing like, oh, I saw *Night of the Living Dead* on public access television growing up. I saw it on TNT growing up. Uh, it is also a movie I showed to like my little cousins when they were they were growing up, uh, not like eight, but like let's say like thirteen to fifteen, and they start laughing when they see the uh, the zombie in the graveyard, because like you know, old movies are hokey. And then once they get to the the farmhouse and they feel kind of more psychologically boxed in, I see them like kind of pulling up on the blankets and (laughs) getting more tense. And like they're like staring more at the screen with like a a more like scared expression. And when it's over, they're like, that was really good. Like the movie (laughs) still has a power, which must mean uh, back in 1968, it must have terrified the fuck out of kids because it still terrifies the fuck out of kids.
2: Well, it's interesting you say the, the, that they're laughing at the graveyard scene and that it's hokey because something that I really picked up on um, the second time that I watched this, I watched, so I watched this once a couple of weeks ago, then watched the other three dead movies that you're covering and then circled back around to this. And watching it the second time, I really picked up on some of the more, um, I don't know if the word would be avant-garde elements, but uh, particularly in in the graveyard scene when the first, Ghoul uh, is is um, attacking. Is it Johnny the brother? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. The the sound design gets very strange and very sort of shrieky. And you know this is this is a movie that looks like uh, sort of a movie from ten years earlier. And and you can sort of forget that this is not a movie from nineteen fifty eight, but is actually from sixty eight, the same year as Rosemary's Baby in two thousand one, and these more sort of experimental movies. And then something like this. Bizarre sound design of, of Like metal on metal or The moment at the end where uh, Helen is getting killed And her scream turns into like this Sort of bird sound um, That hit me as as Very unsettling even amongst The sort of like hokey 50's monster movie stuff
0: Yeah that's I think that's partially Because the effects are all done um, In a retro classic Kind of style they're not done by a Computer so like that sort of like weird, that weird warbling sound that you hear when she's she's screaming is like um, it doesn't sound fake, but it doesn't sound um, everyday and real. Those sort of um, artistic touches that sort of uh, are more impressionistic. Really stand out from how uh, the movie was shot, which George Romero said he shot it in black and white, and he shot it with a specific film stock and a specific camera because he wanted it to look like news footage. But he added all these sort of like, like you say, like avant-garde or impressionistic techniques to sort of uh, heighten dramatic moments. But he doesn't necessarily do it in the way that like you would expect. Um, other filmmakers to to do so. Um, and there's a lot of crazy weird close-ups that feel more like European-inspired. It's the, the camera never feels bolted down. It's often like handheld and like shaking a little bit. Yeah. And you can tell, there's moments where you can, I mean, that's also the film stock thing. It, it almost looks like v- footage from Vietnam or something, right? Or from you know, uh, civil rights riots or what have you. It's It looks like Moments of trauma that people would be watching on TV, but it's real and the black and whiteness of it makes it so much more real I think
1: well not only that because I, I do want to bring this up as well but just the lighting and the shadows at play in this movie are phenomenal and actually because I did watch it earlier this month when I just rewatched it uh, before we did the show tonight just because I, I just went on YouTube and watched it I watched the colorized version for the first time and it is missing so much of that what in that version. very silly thing to do <laughs> yeah well but, but doing but just like especially once I get into the farmhouse Just the the way like the the staircase and the banister like just project shadows onto things like uh, I've heard people say like it gives it almost like a film noir kind of vibe, but it just I, I don't know. It heightens the mystery and it heightens the darkness surrounding them that they don't know what's around any corner in such a way that I think just constantly builds tension around them.
0: So That's- one also problem. So one also problem with the um, uh, public domain nature of it is you get a bunch of these cheap DVDs, these colorized DVDs, and they're all kind of like mixed in together, mm-hmm. and uh, that actually makes it really hard for like a quality distributor to step in and be like, "We're going to do a Blu-ray transfer of it." Um, because well, what do the you light- work from well, the market? <laughs> the market is flooded and what do you work from? All these, restora- all these these versions look like shit. Also on Amazon Prime, they have, maybe it's with Shutter as well, but
1: they have three different versions that you can stream right now. Oh yeah, yeah. No, they have so many. But that's the thing is actually the colorized version, the colorization was actually done pretty well. Like it wasn't a super shitty colorized version, but it just, I felt like it took a lot away from the actual movie. Like I feel that's one movie where the black and white really plays into its favor as a horror film.
2: It's interesting that you bring up the the shadows because that's something that that really struck me a lot, uh, particularly in the exterior uh, shots is you're often not seeing more than you know ten or eleven ghouls uh, mm-hmm. at, at any time, but the uh, behind them is just this sort of pitch black inky forest, and and you get the sense that like there's just infinite. Of these things out there and it's it's that really contributes to making it feel like a much more oppressive and frightening situation than uh it would be if if it was sort of robbed of that uh oppressive darkness and and i think that is something that he really found a way to to make work in his favor and making the best use of limited resources is something that really struck me a lot as i watched this is he was a hell of a smart guy in terms of how to get the most bang for his buck and really make you feel the most dread possible... Uh, you know, on, on clearly a really tight budget.
0: The shadows are something worth really digging into because they sort of, uh, I heard that the way that they makeup artist drew the makeup on the zombies was she wasn't trying to outline the horror or the fact that they're decayed as much as she's trying to uh, make their faces really pop in between the shadows and the light. She was worried that their faces would get lost in all the dark because they were shooting a lot of nighttime scenes and it really works. It has this almost, uh, you know, vague German expressionist thing where like the they they they're Features look so exaggerated and they're... Th- well, they look
1: like ghouls.
0: <laughs> that's yes, the right term. Yes. Yeah. By Dawn of the Dead, he had sort of moved away from this. And that's what makes this movie really unique. Well, that's and when they start getting into
1: like green skin and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, he moved away from that in Dawn of the Dead. But this really has this sort of... These, are, these ghouls are sort of these like creatures of the night. These shapeless things. And they also have more intelligence in this movie. Like they knock out his headlights. Let's talk about
1: the first zombie... Because so so fast Yeah that's the thing (laughs) uh, Romero is known for like the slow zombie Like if you're gonna make a slow zombie movie You're making a Romero type of movie But the first zombie we ever see on on film In a Romero film He is running after that car Like he's moving way faster than even any of the zombies Like throughout the rest of the movie do And that's the first one we come in contact with But he's like using a rock to break through a car window Like there's intelligence there as well
0: Earlier, I said, you know, kids could maybe take that scene as hokey. Even if you don't take it as a zombie, you just take it as, uh, you know, a uh, an intruder, someone trying to, like, violate Barbara. Like, whatever you think that he – whatever his motives are for attacking her, um, you're scared of him because he's just this, like, feral animal. In Dawn of the Dead, they start to use tools a little bit. And then Land of the Dead, they're full-on using tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, including guns. In this, he like it's almost like Land of the Dead. And this, or where the zombies are the smartest, because like he tries to get in the window. He's like, "Fuck that, that's not gonna work." Sees a brick and is like, "All right, I got the brick." And then starts in on the window. Like he calculates that so fast, and it shows you that like Romero wasn't trying to codify what zombies are. He just did.
1: Well, do you also think that maybe? There's a a thing to that, that maybe the first zombie we ever see or the first ghoul that we see doesn't have that much makeup, does look more human than the rest of them tend to, and moves a bit more human-like. Like, he's one that maybe just turned or something and hasn't gone completely, you know... Kind of rotting away dead and so Maybe you're not sure what you're dealing With yet until we finally start seeing More of them because even once he Chases her to the farmhouse then He starts kind of swaying and moving Slower as if like maybe the brain Activity died a bit more than When he first got turned or something But because there's even a moment like after he breaks through the, The car window and then she Releases the parking brake and starts going down like He's kind of chasing with the car for a second But he's like trying to pull on the car Thinking he could maybe stop it like with his hands and then he can't so he just eventually lets it go and starts chasing after it
0: so and and that's uh, like I was discussing I saw Let's Scare Jessica to Death from three years after this that is a movie that is shot in color but it also has this like these daylight horror scenes I think it's pretty tough to make stuff scary during the daytime I think there's, like, a sense of warmness that our brains just feel when we see that, like, oh, well, it's during the daytime. We're, we're completely safe. But, like, the idea of being able to have this oppressive element move on you uh, when you feel most safe, most comfortable. You're not like, well, it's getting dark. I should get home. You're like, well, this is the middle of my day. I'm just being attacked in the middle of the day. It, it, you're so, so right. That, that first attack is... So scary, and his uh, behavior, like you pointed out, he sort of drains. His behavior is erratic enough that it adds to the sort of like feralness of these creatures. He's not, he's not just like a a person that happens to want to eat people. He's not just, he's not a cannibal.
2: He's a zombie. Mm-hmm. So, and something that I really loved about this movie is kind of that it wasn't a zombie movie. Um, I really, I I felt like these things are more sort of killing machines. And so when he's using tools to just like do whatever it takes and, and the fact that they also eat the flesh of their dead almost feels sort of secondary at at certain points. And when at the end, Karen kills her parents, that is I think one of the most effective moments because it's not that she, you know, is is doing the classic must have brain zombie thing that we recognize. She's just killing them with a with a spade with this very sort of focused intensity, and that feels feels much more sort of visceral and frightening to me than um, you know, like I said, some of the stuff that it would eventually turn into as conventions. And the other thing that I love is that it felt like the the uh, actors themselves had this freedom to experiment with how these things move and if you look at each individual one of them like they're not drawing on years and years of what zombies look like often influenced by romero they're sort of making decisions for themselves that that gives each one of them this really exciting sort of unique flavor like well yeah they're all different (laughs) yeah there's there's this moment where a woman is like very sort of sensually exploring a fern and then puts it in her mouth like these things are fucking creepy. Oh yeah. I feel like I'm I'm controlling myself from just punctuating every observation with this movie is so fucking cool.
1: (laughs) I really think that this is a near perfect movie. If not a perfect movie, but at, at least it is a near perfect movie in my eyes.
0: So as someone who is uh, only 26 years old and was not alive when either of these movies came out, uh, uh, I think that the movie Night of the Living Dead reminds me a lot of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They both are have this incredibly raw, anti-Hollywood feel to them. They don't feel like these focused efforts that a bunch of producers were like, we're going to tell this story. It feels like a true artist is at work. That artist might not have all the technical skill that they would have later. Like, that's the weird thing about Toby Hooper, is he made his best movie when he was the worst technical filmmaker. Those both movies shook up the culture so much, and they were so like politically and on a personal level, assaultive to audiences and they changed how horror would be forever. So I see like, if you wanted to break up horror movie eras, I would feel like it's like this and then the exorcist and Texas, Texas chance massacre, like sort of helped
1: Halloween. break up
0: Halloween helped sort of these, these like four big movies, five big movies sort of helped break up, the late 20th century of of horror and also their influences were felt in everything.
1: Well, that's the thing you were saying. It's a, it's true. Like an artist making something, not a, you know, producers in a studio saying, Oh, we need to do this. But each one of those then spawned, you know, 50 imitators of production companies being like, Oh, we need to do this. This is what people like because they did have that kind of effect on people. It's true.
2: There's, there's an urgency to this movie. There's a sense that, He's, he's not doing this uh, because I'm a filmmaker and this is what I do. It's I am going to be a filmmaker and I have this passion in me and I am going to leave it all on the screen. And, and I, I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> absolutely. And, and <laughs> you know, you, you called it a perfect movie, Marcus, and I would uh, disagree on on some level because there's a lot of sort of, I, I don't want to say flaws, sort of flaws with scare quotes Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that I'd love to talk about sort of the shape of the movie is very strange the way it's structured but everything that is, is quote unquote a flaw is also something that contributes to what makes it so effective and, and so it's kind of perfect in its imperfection for me and, and that is really cool and, and a really tough uh, sort of nail to hit <laughs> Oh, yeah. And, and <laughs> that's what the magic of cinema
0: is, where something is such a powerful experience and grabs you by the throat. You're like, yeah, obviously, I know that that character's performance wasn't great. Obviously, I saw that there were there's a fucking boom mic in this shot or whatever. But who cares? Like, that's the power. And obviously, we should be recognizing those flaws and we will on this
1: show. Well, Yeah, and we can. But it it, it so nails its intent. <laughs>
0: yes i kind of want to talk about in terms of like the effect it had on audiences and what romero was saying the one interesting thing about this movie that everyone talks about is that ben was written as a white man well and a dumb truck driver as well yes dwayne jones was cast because george romero said i think in a very uh progressive sort of way said i didn't cast him because he was black I cast him because he was the best actor for the role, which is very indicative of I think um that sort of mindset of the yeah, time. He gave the best audition. He, even in interviews later, he was, he was never he was never taking it away from Dwayne Jones's great performance and he was never saying I just used him as a black man. He was saying he was a great actor, he gave a great performance, I cast him for that reason. Really respect George on that level. I also want to say maybe he did once they, the, you know, they saw that there was a uh, black man being cast as his lead. Maybe
1: he leaned into it. I, I think that's pretty clear that he he did at least a little bit, but also uh, I just have to give credit to Dwayne Jones for completely changing the shape of that character because he was originally kind of a a dumb truck driver and was much more angry (laughs) and kind of stuff but no because Dwayne Jones was like an actor and a well-educated man he changed the character into a more cool and collected educated man (laughs) that like was in charge of shit yes yes
2: he casts this guy who is he's a phenomenal actor certainly but then once he is on set, that's that's going to change the shape of the movie around him a little bit. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so like any any scene where uh, he and, uh, is it, Harold are, are butting heads, like, there, there's, I think... Rob an Corddry. Undeniable... <laughs> Rob... Rob Corddry. <laughs> yeah. Sure. There's an undeniable, I think, racial tension there that is never quite made over, I think, to the movie's credit, but it certainly puts a charge through things. And then, you know... As, as we didn't get to in that incredibly efficient uh, summary, the movie does end uh, with him getting a bullet in the head. I know Romero said over the years that that was absolutely not a, a political choice, but it, it, it certainly has a resonance, and, and even more so in 1968, that it wouldn't have <laughs> if, if it was a white guy.
1: Dish. Well, Dwayne oh Jones fought God, for that, for actually. Th- they were going to make more of a happy ending where he survived, and Dwayne Jones was like, no, he should die at the end. <laughs> Really, Dwayne Jones fought to soften the character and make him a little smarter, and
0: uh, some of that stuff is still left in. The fact that he strikes Barbara, I think, was yeah, Dwayne he did Jones want to remove to that, out. yeah, yeah. Which I also, I also think, um, I'll get to that in a little bit, but I think that that is uh, a terrible thing. But it also sort of it works um, in the movie. It works in the movie because of the way – the rest of the way he acts sort of leads to that. Uh, it's a horrible act, but, like, he's also acting like a totalitarian. He's very commanding of people. He's not asking for people's opinions. He's saying, like, you can be – you know, you you can be the boss down there, but I'm the boss up here. When you're up here, you listen to me, which is, like, something he has to do to survive. But it's also,
1: like, he doesn't even try and talk to Harold. Oh, yeah, no, because at a certain point, you're just in his way. And if you're, if you're over here, if you're, you're being hysterical, if you're, if you're stopping him from getting his his tasks done, then yeah. And it was also like, she did strike him and then he just immediately was just like, nope, (laughs) like you were, you were wasting my time.
0: So he, he has this sort of, um, very human quality that Romero's really good at getting to where he is a flawed human being. And that act is a horrible thing to do to somebody. And it's also of the era.
1: He's no hero. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes, yes. They did that in sci-fi movies all the time. They'd be like, oh that woman's hysterical, I better slap her. Like, what about a calm tone of voice? <laughs> or a conver- or a conversation with another human being. <laughs> Lest you use your backhand. Like it's it's a weird era thing that like doesn't feel like it's entirely attached to that era because I think they make it very clear that this guy is not the hero. Well, and he
1: half hero. tries that because yes. when she's telling her story, within about 30 seconds, he is over it. He does not give a shit anymore. She's he's rambling. stamping his feet. Yeah, he, he's putting stuff up against the door. He just keeps saying like, I think you need to calm down. And then she finally, like, gets hysterical and stuff. And he was just like, you are just wasting my time right now. So, like, he wasn't even trying to be caring or understanding or anything. Within 30 seconds of her telling her story, as soon as she was like, he asked for candy and I didn't have candy. He's like, oh, <laughs> fuck this. It's kind yeah. of his attitude was- about I really admire I I really admire
2: how thoughtful and caring and listening you guys would apparently be during a zombie assault on your house. I never for I never for a second thought this guy's being totalitarian and should be nicer. I, I just keep him <laughs> as like somebody's gotta fucking take charge of this situation.
1: Well that's the thing. He's not a hero. He's just he has to because who else is gonna do it? He's he's, he's far like far. a John McClane. <laughs> so that's the that's the
0: problem with The Walking Dead, uh, is a show that I've given up on. There's a lot of problems with problem. The Walking.
1: I've only watched it's one about, episode. The, but
0: the key problem with The Walking Dead is it doesn't realize that Rick is becoming a dictator. And then once it realizes Rick is becoming a dictator, it never actually owns that fact. (laughs) So like, I kind of like that. This is a thing where you're seeing somebody who's like being a hardcore, like survivalist. Who's just like, I need to take command or no one else will. And you're like, fuck yeah, do it. And then when you see the way that he just like trounces on a traumatized human being, you're also like, but don't hit a woman. She's clearly having an emotional breakdown, but he does soften on her later. But anyways. Well, he hits about
1: half the people in the house at some point or another. <laughs>
0: the footage at the very end, over the end credits, where Ben dies. Over the credits, there's shots of people walking into this house and standing over Ben's dead body. and it, it It's very
1: much work. like Texas Chainsaw, like with the, the snapshots. Yeah.
0: Very- <laughs> It is very Texas Chainsaw. It's very true crime. It does match the style of the movie. It also reminds me of like Emmett Till and a lot of like dead black kids and lynched black men mm-hmm. and women that you see black and white photographs of because horrible racists were proud of what they did enough to take a fucking photograph.
2: The fact that it's photos, yeah, is is this – the fact that it's photos is, is a really amazing choice at the end that is is so – gut-wrenching. Even after everything we've watched, is these men just standing over his body, looking down, completely sort of dispassionate, and they've got these hooks in their hands.
1: And ugh. It's... it's ugh. Oh yeah, is and you see that man? bullet wound as he, he's laying over the, the pile? But I love how they do all the snapshots, but then, after the credits, like at the very, very end, then it just actually plays and you just see the fire burning all the bodies. I don't know if I sort of get what that ending is getting at. Um,
2: it feels like sort of a, a, just a sour joke of an ending. I, I think the ending is really interesting because I sort of get the sense that, that things are turning for the bright side. I I If you're watching this movie in a vacuum and you don't know there's going to be three more, I kind of feel like humanity might be sort of getting control of the situation. And whether or not he is the hero, our hero, our our sort of de facto protagonist has survived the night and then he just gets shot. (laughs) It just, it feels like this very nihilistic uh, sort of sort of middle finger of an ending. And there's, there's a lot of different ways you can read it thematically and everything, but it just, it feels very sour to me, uh, in, in a way that I've, I haven't quite been able to reconcile.
0: It's definitely sour. It is a angry movie.
1: It, it is, but I mean, it, it kind of, again, it plays for me because you can go through all of this. You, you can fight against everything. You can fight against these monsters surrounding you, but. At the end of the day, oh, it's just gonna be the guy next door that's just gonna shoot you in the head. <laughs> well, he's just gonna be the people that are saying they're trying to help, but like, they're just, they're not concerned about you. They're, they're just gonna go through and just shoot anything that's still moving in there. It doesn't matter how much you fought and what you survived through, and uh, you're still just gonna be taken out by a random person, or you're still just gonna be taken out by society.
0: So the running theme of all the movies is, um, and it's sort of been, you know, overdone, I think, since Romero. But the running theme of the movies is
1: what's the difference?
0: What's the difference between us and the zombies? In fact, we may be worse than them. That's the whole spoiler alert. That's the whole point. Of the According get, to Romero, right? it's like we are worse than them. <laughs> Yes, yes. Spoiler alert: The title of The Walking Dead is uh, a double meaning. It's both. You know, there's there's actually walking dead people, and also the people that are left behind are uh, might as well be dead because they're just like moving on robotically through life. And at each one of these movies, it is not the zombies that end to the do- that lead to the downfall. For the first three, at least, it's not zombies that lead. Actually, no, it's all four. Yeah, all four the, of them.
1: It's the humans.
0: <laughs> It's humans that fuck up the humans. Humans figure out ways to fight off the zombies pretty quickly. They figure out a good system, and then the humans, all in their little
1: bubble, turn on each other. But it's greed, or it's envy, it'll... it's it's all these things uh, that, yeah, just get... It's humans yeah. getting in the way of themselves and of their own survival. Which yeah. you can and say, it, like, yeah, it's a zombie apocalypse, but yeah, they kind of do that with everything.
0: <laughs> a, you know, these cops... These, they, having this fun little redneck party, which is expanded in Dawn of the Dead with, like, a ironic music sequence where they're, like, listening to a country song and drinking beers and having this party. And then, you know, zombies show up and they're like, oh, let's go shoot the zombies. Like, it's deer hunting season. Uh, Dawn of the Dead would expand on this idea that these, like, redneck cops don't even recognize a black man as a human being. So it is a sour, angry fucking ending. But it's... right to the purposes of, of Romero saying, you know, these are people. And also it is it is it is, you know, thematically, society saying, a black man took charge, a black man came out on top.
2: That can't
1: happen. Well, that's added to it by by having the actor
2: <laughs> definitely. Yes. But you mentioned the other three movies. This is also the only one of the movies where the protagonist doesn't sort of sail off into the sunset. Am I am I right
1: about that? Well, yes. I, there's never really sure. too much of a sunset to sail off into. It they're kind of all in direly, and it and it even progresses. It's not so much here, but as the movies progress. You become more empathetic with the zombies as the series goes on. Like, you feel more and more for the zombies, and he makes them more empathetic characters to where the humans kind of more become the monsters and the bad guys. Uh, so yeah, but uh, thinking about it, like, yeah, there's never really, like, even if people escape, even if people get away, like, where is there to go? This is what it is now. Nothing's gonna get better.
2: Well, but in the other three, I mean, it, it does at least end with the protagonist sort of shoving off i mean and and day of the dead ends with them on a beach on an island doesn't it
1: it it'll get to you eventually <laughs> as we've seen in other things
0: yeah day of the dead has uh, i think the happiest of the three which is weird because day of the dead is the bleakest of the of the four movies That's maybe so and also maybe, maybe has the most
1: empathetic uh, zombie as well yes and Bubba, oh, yeah. oh my god i yes. love that.
0: so bub's great exactly so dawn and dawn and land i think end with people moving off for the hope of another an another home another sunset
1: but they're gonna restart society yeah right
0: (laughs) yeah we, we we keep seeing that that people can't apparently live together and they can't coexist but like let's fucking try it again uh this movie at the end is like listen even if you come out on top it might not be the zombies that betray you it might be your own fellow man. And I think I think the Romero does something interesting with also Barbara, which I don't know if it was intended. You guys have to tell me if it was intended. So Barbara gets the movie taken away from her. Let's just say that, right? Because yes. she, be, she be, starts as an active protagonist that becomes a passive protagonist and sort of is along for the ride, mm-hmm. which a lot of people hate about her.
1: Well, that was actually her performance. She really becomes more of a, of a bird. She was originally written as a stronger character, but that's kind of Judith O'Day's performance. Like, they just kind of went with that because that's what she was doing and they thought it, it worked for the movie. But then... Uh, Eventually, in 1990, when Tom Savini did a remake of this, which I actually really love as well. Oh, they I love the remake as well. Yeah, that they, they, they made Barbara a more strong female protagonist, and I, it fucking worked just as well, I thought. I actually liked <laughs> they, that version of Barbara much more.
0: I think that they did a smarter move with the uh, Night of the Living Dead remake. So, yeah, George originally scripted her as strong woman they brought in an actress he pivoted just like i'm saying with dwayne jones he brought they brought dwayne jones in and then he was like pivoted and made the movie you know a little bit more racially charged than i think it was originally then uh you made this remake and he did a little bit of ripley where he like made her into this like tough badass but took away some of her femininity but he still doesn't take away her human
1: vulnerability in the remake no i really appreciate that yeah, because she does still have that, but she's like, oh well, what am I gonna do about it? I need to get my shit together. I need to fucking survive. Yeah, instead of just kind of climbing out. She
0: she kills the zombies, but also she like is upset about like her situation. She's not just this like cold killing machine the way Dwayne Jones is in this, and Tony Todd is in the remake
1: and i don't think dwayne jones is a cold killer in this because he still has even like when he sees the body at the top of the stairs he still has like a visceral reaction where he almost kind of falls back down the stairs even when he goes outside and beats those first two uh ghouls like over the head with it with the crowbar or the tire iron like he he seems like hurt and disgusted with himself that a he had to do this and b that he did it so easily which i think is a good like struggle he has within himself throughout this movie
0: and like you guys saw, after he k- kills Harold, his wife, and the daughter. Well, if he kills Harold. <laughs> I am wrong. Yes, he he put the daughter upstairs. Uh, they would kill kids in Dawn of the Dead, but they didn't kill him in this. He kills Harold and his wife when they're
1: zombies. Well, no, no, the daughter kills the wife, and then she rises. As a oh, zombie. yeah, and then she rises. And okay, so yeah, th- he does shoot both of them, but yeah, just initially, yeah. we shoot them. It's I guess it's different when they're zombies. He doesn't outright yeah. kill them. He does shoot Harold, and that winds up. I guess the daughter even eats him, but still pretty much kills him. But he
0: shows uh, he's mostly a badass for the movie, but like this like pragmatist that you're like, you need to soften up a little bit, man. You're dealing with people. He's in the basement and he like kills them and then he just like is, feels so shitty that things went so that he just like puts his head and his hand against a post and like that's that's the shot we're left on him until he comes upstairs and is it is murdered is him in a state of complete depression and trauma from what he just went through. So I agree, he's not just like a cold-killing machine, but I just mean, like, in terms of the rest of the people in the movie, he's, like, this competent dude who's just, like, always coming up with new ideas to distract and kill the
1: dead. Do you think that's a thing with with that, though? Like, say okay so he he did survive he is somewhat the hero he did go through all of this but again in doing so you know he he killed people uh, both ghouls and living people and stuff like that and so he survived the night but then he just ends up getting killed as well and it's just like uh, well I mean was he any better than anyone else or even the ghouls because he killed just as many people as any of them so it's like oh of course like you know you, you don't deserve to be the hero and live and survive like no you you're just as shitty as anyone else and any of the other ghouls or anything
0: i guess that's true i mean in the end he ended up in the same place they were and he was super competent he just wasn't the burden is placed on humanity not him i think which is important it's not like if he had well, yeah no no that's but it's <laughs> just
1: the animalistic nature comes out in the ghouls and it comes out in the humans and they both end up in the same place because they both just wind up dead
0: yeah and he he fucking owns his movie he, this is for all those dudes who keep zombie survival packs in their closet with a gun and canned food and shit like yeah the popular a character kids for you there's a character for you and it weirdly preempted the survival uh zombie survival people mm-hmm. because it, it shows you like he came out on top but where did that get him he's traumatized he's angry he's sad and then he gets murdered by mistake. Or on purpose, depending on how you read the ending.
1: Well, I think it's just carelessness. It's not caring.
2: <laughs> but Pete, it sounded like you were a while ago, you were starting to talk about Barbara getting the movie taken away from her. Yes. Mm. The, the shape of the movie and, and... Even the conversation got taken away from her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but the way the characters are introduced and when and sort of who the ball gets passed to, I think is really interesting because it, it lends the movie a very sort of strange shape. Um where sort of Barbara is the protagonist for about 10 minutes. uh, And then Ben and Barbara are pretty much alone on on screen for almost half the movie before then the others show up for the second half. And I think that unbalances the movie in ways that are are sort of to its detriment at some times. Because I think the fact that two thirds of the characters are are only on screen for about half the movie or less in the case of Tom and Judy uh, sort of does an injustice to their characterization and, and uh, can kind of make it feel rushed, but also is, is one of the most fascinating elements to me because the word fascinating, I think is really overused in movie podcasts, but it it really applies here Um, (laughs) because it, it, it lends the movie a a sort of sense of, well, I went 45 minutes thinking it was just these two. And then these four others showed up from the basement. So who's going to be in the attic at any minute? And so when I mentioned that it is sort of perfectly imperfect or imperfectly perfect that's that's kind of what I was thinking of is is yeah like Barbara gets the movie taken away from her and it is quote unquote a flaw but that performance carries it and the story carries it I, I didn't notice it was a flaw until I sort of forced myself to notice later
1: I actually have a question for you Ethan uh as a playwright, do you feel like you were maybe drawn in or maybe enjoyed this movie in a certain way? Because this is about two steps away from being able to be just a play. Because it is mostly just people interacting in a house together with the exception of the opening and where it eventually goes. But even some of that with like trying to keep out the evil or the other while also having human struggle and conflicting dynamics inside of a house between like five or six characters. Do you think that drew you into it some? Yeah. You could do this on stage. Yeah. You could do this on stage
2: without a whole lot of trouble. I think there is something to that and something that I I am sure I didn't read a lot of sort of critical commentary on this before I I came here to talk because I didn't want to sort of color my uh, thoughts with other people's analysis. But I think something that I'm sure has been talked about is how it feels like a very global story despite only having the, those five or six people in the house, because it'll, it'll the radio, from, the news reports. Yeah. Uses the radio. And it, it reminded me a lot of, uh, signs, the M night Shyamalan movie, where again, it's, it's both the story of something happening globally, a global pandemic, but also just this very intimate story of a few people trying to survive. And it manages to, uh, to have its cake and eat it too, so to speak in, a really, really cool and and genius way. Has that been talked about the the parallels with with signs? <laughs> I mean, maybe
1: somewhere out there.
2: That I mean, if if you told me that Shyamalan was not doing like an overt uh, sort of reference to this movie, I would say Shyamalan is lying. Oh yeah. That, oh my.
1: God. I think so. Yeah, he was just doing it with aliens. <laughs>
2: Exactly, because you know they're they're in the house. they're just a few people trying to survive. and then you turn to the TV news, and all of a sudden it becomes this epic. And there's a moment where um Ben is telling a story of of uh, what happened to him before he showed up at the house. And the writing and the acting are so strong that both times I watched it, I
1: would forget I wasn't seeing this scene happen. Well, that's the thing. Most of it was kind of ad lib. Like there was somewhat of a script, but they tended to say that like, yeah, we kind of just like, because even that, like he changed most of his dialogue and like made it sound the way he would sound and his character would sound. Yeah. And that's, that's something else that's
2: interesting is, is that, yeah, I I had read the same thing that it was sort of semi ad-libbed and film was, was not cheap in 1968. And this was a really, really small budget movie. And that is really demonstrating a lot of faith uh, in in the actors and a lot of um, – clearly a lot of trust between uh, Romero and his actors to be able to play like that and um, not worry about burning film. So that's yeah. that's something that, that's very easy to take for granted in this era of digital filmmaking and you just fill up cards and dump them on the hard drive. But they have finite resources and that's, that's a really – Interesting thing that they were doing to play around like that
1: when not so many people were. Well, and it paid off. I mean, not so much for Romero, but it was at least at the time, one of, if not the most successful independent film of all time. Cause I think the budget was like a little bit over a hundred thousand and it ended up making 30 million in its theatrical run domestically and internationally. Not to mention, of course, obviously when it came out on video and stuff, uh, not so much money flying towards anyone involved, but
0: yeah. Yeah. I, I agree that there's a sort of naturalism to this and, uh, sort of flow between the characters that feels really um, it doesn't feel either like a stage production to me or like a movie of the era. And I think that the, it's one of those movies that like I think has a lot of happy accidents going on. But one of them is that Romero decided to also direct the actors like they were real people and real scenes. Like the sheriff is clearly being directed like he's on TV, right? Because, He's being told that that footage is going to be used on TV. But like, I think even like, uh, Dwayne Jones sort of performs his lines like a real person standing in a real room. It's very natural. He doesn't like do, he only yells when he's like trying to subjugate someone who's being an asshole or like is not doing what he thinks is the best thing to do. And yeah, you said earlier, you were talking about like, um, you mentioned the the TV thing. There's a line where Tom says, uh, well, the, the television said that's the right thing to do. And I think that's a it's a good hint at what the movie's goals are. Um, and that's a line that feels very writerly, but when Tom says it, it can fly right past you because of the way it's delivered.
1: Well, and it is the thing about, it seems like, because these characters are dealing with a very real scenario on a very local right in front of them level like they are dealing with this but it seems like they are reaching out through the radio through the television just for hope or even though it's it's also bringing the movie on a more global scale and showing that this is happening everywhere it just seems like they're looking for some sort of comfort and seeing that other people are also going through this and some people are i guess surviving or there there is some hope of getting through this
2: There's a very strange moment, uh, probably two thirds of the way through when they're waiting for another broadcast uh, that'll tell them something. And Barbara goes into this weird sort of catatonic fugue where she's saying, oh, 10 minutes, 10 minutes is not very long to wait sort of for for mother television to tell us, you know, (laughs) what to do. Oh, my God. No.
0: And 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 they sort of when they're showing this. Excuse me. They're showing the scientists getting into a car and being, like, harangued about answers, and they have no answers. It's so
1: scary because of how natural the performances are. Well, yeah, because you have the general that's just like, no, we can't confirm anything. The scientists being like, no, we're pretty sure this is what it is. And the military guy's like, nope, we don't know what it is.
0: They're just these dorks. Like, you're like... fucking do something like these people are dying out in this this uh, wilderness and at least they have a Dwayne
2: Jones with them kicking ass like most people don't have a Dwayne Jones at home and to the point of, uh, of how natural it feels that's also the only scene I noticed where a character uh, audibly flubs a line the, uh, the, the reporter who's interviewing the scientist and the general uh, stumbles over a line in
1: this way that feels accidental but also very real well yeah because he's oh, running yeah. and trying to get an interview with someone that doesn't <laughs> that's trying to get away from him <laughs>
0: Whereas, and also in real life, someone's pride might get that part of the interview scrubbed or whatever. But because of how you get the sense that like people are making mistakes because nobody is sleeping, nobody is is you know editing. They're just like throwing they just whatever need they something. can on TV.
1: Yeah.
0: Where uh, Dawn of the Dead also carries this on. The series flows together really nicely and in, in it kind really of. Does overt ways and subverting ways like the uh the the fact that media is such a big role in the first two is like kind of a linking a linking chain uh and this one in particular the way media is used is really helpful this movie found a genius way to deliver exposition about the world building that i think most movies can't pull off. It feels so natural when they're like, they're like fighting at the, to get the TV on and they're setting up the TV on chairs and shit. And then they finally get the TV on and then the TV's on while they're like boarding up windows. And you're like, all we're doing is listening to someone give us exposition and I am wrapped.
1: Well, it's not even just exposition. If you would actually just take all of those moments, all the, the radio spots and the TV spots and line them up together, it would tell its own story. It has its own arc from the beginning when uh, Johnny turns off the radio when they're like, oh, we just came back after some technical difficulties to when they start listening to the radio initially. It's just like there's there's a mass killing going on and there, there are these assassins out there and we're getting some responses. That yeah. And, and then eventually it goes to like uh, the dead are coming back to life and they are eating their victims to yeah to eventually like we're sending people out we're showing on TV that they're killing these things and stuff like that so like it even the actual news media in the film has its own story arc which I think is kind of brilliant
2: so there is one uh, sort of big topic for me that we haven't hit yet that I'd love to throw out there for you guys perspectives uh, if we could which is and it, it gets back to the to the I am legend thing um Which is, I read on Wikipedia that um, Romero saw the dead coming back to life as as sort of metaphorically linked to the idea of revolution, which is obviously, you know, really sort of a a hot topic in 1968. And I have been thinking a lot in the last few days of sort of what the revolution could be and, and... one of the few pieces of of critical sort of analysis that I did see was the idea that um, the people in the house represent the counterculture and that they are being overrun by the forces around them. And that doesn't track for me. My natural response as I watched it was the idea that the people in the house represent um, sort of the old guard and that the the undead creatures are, are more like the counterculture. And if there's going to be a revolutionary force, if the zombies are the revolution, then they're the new thing. And they should be taking over the world as, as the counterculture and as, as sort of more progressive ideas would be. And I like that something... reading
1: of it. <laughs> well, yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> but it's, well, it's,
2: it's confusing.
1: Yeah, well, that's the thing, though, is that, yeah, that does seem like maybe how people would maybe read it like, yeah, the people inside the house are trying to fight off against, you know, you can say capitalism, you can say just the the general society, whatever, but no, it's, you would think if there is a revolution, it would be the dead, the people that have been dead in the society coming back to life and doing something different. But it is also the dead coming back and doing that. So it also shows the futility of doing that and how society will fight back against you and how, even if you destroy all of them, uh, you're still just a, Wandering around as a zombie, looking for shit to eat. Yeah, see, I hadn't thought of it so much as as something coming back, as the
2: idea that that the dead here represented a new force and a new sort of lifestyle. And as we're gonna see over the course of three more movies, this is this is the new world order. And it's it's yeah. I, I saw a quote from Romero that was like, you know, you can fight against the
1: revolution or you can just sort of accept it because this is what's happening in the world. Why just viewed being dead as being complacent? And then rising from the dead would be like, no, I'm not going to be complacent anymore. I'm not going to take this and fighting against the, the main society, fighting against mm. the culture.
0: You're right. They're, it's not a return. It's a um, it's a whole new thing. It's, it's something that's breaking the old cycles. You will come along with them eventually. Uh, that's another thing about this movie we didn't mention, that the dead aren't just infected with a virus anybody who dies if you die from a gunshot as long as your head and your brain are intact
1: yeah no matter no matter how long you survive eventually you're going to become one of them i i love that yeah
0: the revolution is coming whether you like it or not you you
1: know what the end is the end game is you're going to end up like this whether you like it or not you can survive you can fight it but eventually you're going to join the fold
2: which yeah. is something that's, that's so much more interesting, I think, than like, oh, you know, don't let it bite me. It's like, man, if, I, if, if a beam falls on my head and I die right now, I'm going to become one of these things immediately. That is also uh, one of the other... God, there is just so much that I would love to talk about about this movie that we're not going to be able to get to. But one of my favorite lines is uh, in one of the TV broadcasts where somebody says... When your family dies, just just burn them. Get rid of the, uh, you know, forego the dubious comforts of the <laughs> funeral, and that's that is something so viscerally upsetting. The idea that of of you as an audience member thinking, God, what if you know, God forbid, my wife or my child died, could I just throw them
1: on a fire? Uh, no time to mourn. You just have to move on exactly. and keep surviving. Yeah. but even the bite thing that's something that's not even introduced until kind of the very end more or less until you know the actual daughter that was bitten and down there the whole time that's kind of like almost a surprise or a shock thing that like oh it's not just the the recently dead or if you know they catch you they're gonna eat you and kill you like that it's like no oh there's also if you get bitten by them and you survive you still become one so that's almost kind of like a twist shock ending in a way with that but then became the trope going forward.
0: Yes. And the dead being like these um, these sources of infection was something that like is weirdly enough. <laughs> it was in lots of other movies, obviously. But it is uh, more of a thing in like uh, Italian movies. And then it was more codified by 28 Days Later and Resident Evil that sort of codified it as uh, this is a virus And you have to treat it like a virus and wear hazmat suits and, you know, you can't let the blood get in your blood and uh, all that stuff. This is like something way more precarious. There's a deleted scene in Land of the Dead really quickly that has somebody hanging themselves in a very uh, secure location, a like high rise with amazing security. And that causes an issue because once you cut them down, you have a zombie inside your apartment in the middle of the night. Um, and so, like, that, that is something that I don't think Romero explored enough in his four movies. I wish he wait, got
1: even more Wait, when this person hung themselves, were they really just a zombie hanging there waiting for someone to cut them down? <laughs>
0: no they they hung themselves Mm -hmm. uh because they were depressed and then somebody is going to cut them down and then the zombie reanimates
1: oh it doesn't reanimate until they're cut down because i i like the idea of like he hung himself but then he's just like swaying there for i don't know days weeks (laughs) like as a zombie until someone comes in and cuts him down
2: (laughs) just a nice little decoration
1: Yes (laughs)
0: Yes, <laughs> Strangulation doesn't kill zombies, uh, only a blow to the brain. Um, but yeah, that's l- largely my point. It's just like there it is very, very scary the idea that like you could be safe up in your castle and it doesn't matter if none of you have been bitten. If any of you die, if somebody's sick, which also, you know, society's collapsed. There's no antibiotics or anything. If anybody's sick and dies, they have to turn, and it, and it gets the back to a more primal version of the horror, where you have to kill family members and the people closest to you, and people that you might have, you might have kept safe from the zombies, but you couldn't keep them safe from death.
1: Well that's something that's more terrifying about this film as opposed to uh, even the others going forward because as they went forward they had to develop the rules more. The rules are very ill-defined as what is a ghoul? How do you become a ghoul? What could cause this? Like it, it's it's a lot more terrifying because you don't exactly know how this is happening and what's going to progress as opposed to when they have to build rules going forward with sequels.
2: But see that's that's the thing you you keep saying you don't know where it came from we do in this movie
1: and we get away from it it came from radiation from Venus well no because that isn't actually that. that is uh, a two scientists taking a guess but they don't know for sure that's just like well they, maybe this is a thing but it isn't that? actually confirmed in any way <laughs>
2: Mm, I kind of take it. As, I kind of take it as as gospel in this movie that these things are
1: being reanimated by um, radiation from the beam. well. Even Romero but himself yeah, said, okay. "Like, well, that's that's put there in the movie, but it's never confirmed. It might be that that could just be a separate thing."
0: What I love is each movie. Well, I guess the first three movies all offer their own alternative. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dawn of the Dead says, "When there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk." So it's sort of like our punishment is rising up to meet us. In Day, it's sort of implied it's a virus mm-hmm. and this it's implied it's radiation it's just like fears of the era Day of the Dead it's it's a virus because of 80s uh, you know fear of AIDS and other STDs um, in the 70s is the dead you know our sins will come back and haunt us sort of like post 60s
1: losing the counterculture you know, war <laughs>
0: Yeah, post Vietnam, uh, post consumerism taking over large swaths of America with mini malls. Like the idea, not that mini malls in Vietnam are equal, but more the idea of like, have we lost our souls? Mm-hmm. And so each movie has its own sort of justification that doesn't track to the next one. And I think that's to confuse the issue and also say it doesn't matter what the source is this movie for sure says at one point the doctors believe it's the radiation
1: last thing it doesn't matter
0: (laughs) there's plenty of shit it doesn't matter A and there's plenty of shit the doctors
1: are saying on TV that's wrong so like Well, people are going to put their own fears of things because even like at that time, just space exploration, like anything happening outside of our little comfort zone and what what we know is terrifying to us. Yeah. uh, After Vietnam, like losing the war, uh, consumerism and everything that frightens us that we're losing our souls, Uh, the AIDS epidemic and stuff like a virus like that is just here at home that could infect you at any time. Like that's I think people are just always going to project their fears onto that, but it doesn't necessarily necessarily mean that's the cause of what's going on here it's just that's what people are going to jump to because that's the fear of the time
0: and the last i watched this movie i was convinced it was just the movie saying it was radiation and i'm not convinced this time and then the next time i watch this movie i will be convinced it's radiation
1: <laughs> i did have one more question for you ethan uh as a as a father and you have a daughter correct i have a daughter she has just turned one years old how word are you on a regular basis of her murdering you with a shear?
2: Uh, I'd say, like, 75% of any given day. I do worry about that. <laughs> or as she gets older,
1: because she is getting creepy smart.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, $7, buy a padlock, put it on the garden shed.
1: Put the daughter in there, you're
0: good. <laughs> yeah, she might move on to other implements in the house. You gotta think about those, but at least the garden shear thing, you can solve for about $7. She can't talk yet, but the, the
2: look she gives me sometimes, I mean, you just know.
1: As soon as something sharp hits this hand, it's coming for your heart. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But yes, I'm sure your daughter is a lovely
0: person who would never murder you and your whole family. I I can guarantee it. Fingers crossed. Yeah, <laughs> unless you're really you're really asking for it. But yeah, this has been so much fucking fun, guys. Thank you so much. I, I think this could have been four hours. It really could uh, have been. I am so sorry that we uh we just kept gabbing. But
1: like, I'm the not sorry of on my this list was fun.
2: That we didn't cover is is quite long. Uh
1: man, yes. this could totally be a part two. Like, I I man, I feel like we barely scratched the surface. But I really enjoyed this conversation.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much, Ethan. I'm also glad. That like this is your first time watching it and you actually liked it Uh, because this could have been really bad if I mean, Marcus and I were know?
2: on cloud nine. This and could have been an earnest, scared, stupid it.
1: situation.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, if if you are somebody who takes movies seriously and thinks about sort of even just movies as like a historical document, like you'd be an asshole if you didn't engage with this on on some level because it's it's just like I said, it is legitimately fascinating on, on i think just about every level so it's I a historic document pretty lucky that that this is the episode i got to be on
0: awesome thank you so much for coming on man we're definitely gonna have to have you back marcus
1: yeah. thank you so much for being my co-host tonight yeah absolutely i'll be here every week going forward uh yeah uh, yeah do we have an airing update <laughs>
0: Yeah, Aaron, wherever you are, man, I'm sure you're proud of Marcus or you're really angry that he took your slot, in which
1: case uh, we won't know because you are, in fact, legally dead. Ethan, what do you have to plug, my dear boy? I'm sorry. You'll have to excuse uh, my co-host. But uh, yes, what do you have going on with yourself? Let us know thank you so much for asking um so i
2: am a filmmaker i've got uh my indie feature film west of her is coming out in february uh on all sort of digital platforms um we're so excited dude so yeah there'll be some updates on that soon uh, at west of her or we're on facebook uh, at west of her and uh pretty soon i think there'll be a pre-order link available as a playwright my stuff is produced every so often and uh the next one is uh in december uh there's going to be a um developmental reading of my next full-length piece uh in new york city through the vechtel group so we're going to be doing a, a half hour staged reading uh of this play that uh the vechtel group looks at plays that sort of re-examine how we present women uh on stage and in film etc so i'm really excited about that and uh you can read my essays about movies at Brightwall dark room um i've got a piece This month, November, about uh, Acid Westerns and a piece next month looking at the autobiographical films of Guy Madden. Ooh,
1: that's exciting. I really love Guy Madden.
2: (laughs) Well, brightwalldarkroom.com. It's a a different lens on film, and it's a really cool site that I'm really feeling lucky to be reading for these days.
0: And we're going to put all that in the show notes. We're so fucking excited for all of that, buddy. And thank you so
1: much for coming on. Thank you for having me. This has been really a whole lot of fun. So, uh, Marcus, what do you got? Uh, well, I, I do just have to put this out there. Uh, Ethan, I think you're probably the most impressive and awesome <laughs> guest for someone to have. When you get to your plugs, I'm like, oh, shit, I have nothing going on in my life. <laughs> 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 uh, but, of course, you can find me at Uh, uh I write there. Uh, I expect i will probably do a review of west of her as soon as i'm able to see it um but i also do the crush Celluloid podcast jean pod van Dam, uh pete and i have a side podcast hey vern it's a podcast and you can find me here every week going forward as a new co-host of we love to watch
0: don't you understand marcus my podcast co-host is alone
1: your podcast co-host is dead
0: no my podcast co-host is not dead <laughs> is aaron really dead Will Marcus take over his position as my podcast co host? Find out next week in the exciting resolution of this we love to watch drama. You so much for listening to our show and we've got just a few quick announcements for you there ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs baby if you'd like to talk to us uh tell us we're stupid tell us we're beautiful the quickest way to get to us is our facebook group facebook.com slash we love to watch Or our website, WLTWpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people,
1: if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, We don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more
0: people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available, if you don't use iTunes, we're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll
1: take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. guys on our Facebook page, especially, we're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Hey, I saw Neil Breen's Double Down from a Netflix disc, so I have no idea how that happened, but
0: yeah. <laughs> One of Neil Breen's movies ended
1: on... up on
2: Ethan. What? Sorry, go on. Go well, on, Ethan. Hi. I was going to say congratulations to Marcus for uh, retaining your uh, sense of sight and your sanity after watching a Neil Breen film.
1: <laughs> oh, I actually own all of his movies. And I've watched them all several times. I I am in love with that man. He is an enigma. I think he is the the unbreakable Tommy Wiseau, because Tommy Wiseau was completely changed and kind of lost any cloud or steam he had by buying into the joke a little bit or trying to play into that. Neil Breen, I think, is just unbreakable. Because he either is the smartest man alive and he knows exactly what he's doing and just plays dumb and has built this persona, or he is just completely unknowing about everything going on around him and has no idea why people like his films.
0: Yeah, we're definitely in a bubble, I think, for the the Breenster for the lean, mean Breen machine. I think we're definitely in a bubble, Uh, but uh, right now I don't anticipate it popping ever. That's how you're supposed to operate, right? Once you recognize that there's a bubble, you're just supposed to keep pushing on. So I'm going to, like, just continue to watch every single movie he makes and continue to be very, very excited about them because they are baffling in a beautiful way. A way that, uh,. I think, yeah, I think that was, you know, Tommy Wiseau was this great white hope. And this is actually somebody kind of delivering on that. Cause, uh, Neil Breen, I think just takes people's positive affirmations about his movies and then turns that into more movies. Whereas Tommy Wiseau just turned it into like neurotic interviews where he promised projects he would never actually work
2: on. And we've yeah, seen and- a lot of Tommy's body. So we know he is a very, very white hope. <laughs>
1: yes. well and neil breen even like a gets up. a little better each time as a filmmaker but not enough for it to really make a difference and he still just c- seems like he believes every time like hey i'm getting better and there's even i think there's a lost neil breen film out there somewhere he his competency keeps raising and in, yeah in these like
0: small levels but like that's just making his vision pure. He's just getting more powerful. He's
1: getting weirder um, in his vision and what he wants to do every time because yeah. he feels more confident as a filmmaker. So he thinks he can tackle these weirder stories and <laughs> that go a bit higher highbrow in his head, I guess. So it's getting yeah. weirder. <laughs>